Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. My name is Andrew Gutman. I am with my esteemed co-host, Beth Feely. We are two parents, two accidental activists that didn't like what was going on in the schools of our children. Uh, And now on this podcast, we talk about what is going on in the educational system broadly and all the bad things about it, but also how we can potentially fix it. So today we have an interesting guest that I will let Beth, you introduce. Thanks, Andrew. Today, we're very excited to welcome a remarkable young woman who firsthand has seen the life-changing impact of quality education and other factors make um, in making a difference in a young person's life. So we welcome Denisha Merriweather, who currently serves as the Director of Public Relations and Content Marketing at the American Federation for Children. And she's also the founder of Black Minds Matter. Denisha previously served as a confidential assistant political appointee at the U.S. Department of Education under Secretary Betsy DeVos. And Denisha is also a former Florida Tax Credit Scholarship Program student who was the first in her family to graduate from high school and college and um, has her master's degree as well in social work from the University of South Florida. Her story has been featured in a variety of local and national news story, um, news stories, and I also had the pleasure of meeting Denisha at the Old Parkland Conference this past weekend. So timing was, was great on that front. It was great to meet you in person. So welcome, Denisha. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Beth, for having me. And thanks, Andrew, for having me. So, you know, I'd love to start with your story of growing up in Eastside, um, which is an area in Jacksonville. And which at one point was a thriving black community, but then fell on hard times. Um, what happened and what was growing up like there for you? Yeah, the east side of Jacksonville is really it's it still is just a hard place um, for community members to live. Um, but when I was growing up on the east side, it was a place where people would walk around aimlessly, you know, with without hope, a lot of. Uh, high school dropouts, a lot of crime, police presence, and not much going on. There were are not a lot of businesses. Were not a lot of businesses in the neighborhood. Um, and the schools that are in on the east side are all underperforming. They were underperforming when I went there, and they're still underperforming. Um, so it really is just. And you would think that the east side of Jacksonville would be affluent of because of where it is in the city. Um, but it's not. You have the port, which brings in, you know, all of merchandise and equipment um, on one side, downtown Jacksonville, which um, it literally sits right next to the Jaguar Stadium, the the fairgrounds, um, the baseball stadium, Um, And then on the other side, you have historic Springfield, which is an affluent area. Um, And so you would think that the urban core, which is what they commonly call the east side of Jacksonville, would be, you know, more affluent. But it's not. And um, it's, it's quite it's quite sad to see that the east side has not changed for the better in all these years. So I know from your story that education was a big part of it. And you made a big switch, I think, early in your life. And and it kind of made a huge difference in your life. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So growing up, I went to about, I would say, four to five different elementary schools. My family, we moved around a lot. 
I didn't know that at the time we were homeless. You know, that's that word did never correlate with our situation. But it wasn't until I was in grad school, learned the true definition of homelessness that I realized we were homeless. Uh, We lived on, you know, family members, couches. We lived in hotel rooms. Um, We were, you know, hopping around from one place to another. Um, And I never had that stability. Um, As far as education, I hated school. It was not a place that I wanted to go. I knew that the only reason why I had to go to school was so that my mother wouldn't go to jail because that had actually happened before. She'd been uh, locked up because she wasn't sending us to school. You know, this would be, you know, for any reason, Uh, if it was too hot, if it was raining, um, if we were too tired, we just wouldn't go to school. Um, And you had siblings? I did. Yeah, I do. So I'm the oldest of of four, well, five. There are five of us. I'm the oldest of five. And um, yeah, and so we we didn't we just wouldn't go to school. Um, and going to my I went to my local public schools from K to five, and I I didn't like it. I I mean, I really it didn't feel like home. It didn't feel like anyone really cared about me. I failed the third grade twice because I couldn't read, and. I just knew I was dumb. I knew I was stupid. I knew I was incapable of learning, um, that I was a failure. And um, those internal feelings, those internal insecurities were never, uh, you know, debunked by my teachers. You know, I was just going to ask, was it was it teachers or the environment or fellow students or what what were some of the kind of root causes of of you feeling like you were a failure and had no potential? I would say all of the above, you know, when I was feeling like I had when I had low self-esteem and I would try my hand at something in school, would try to you know, read out loud and the teacher would, you know, dismiss me to go to the next student um, because it was just too painful for her ears to hear me try to, you know, get through a passage Um, that, you know, contributed to it. And then also students laughing at me and picking on me and saying like, you know, that's why you're dumb, you know? So I would say all of the above and not receiving any help, any additional help or from uh, my home life, from my biological, you know, mother. And so I would say all of the above contributed to it. And I remember in the fourth grade, I was accepted into this program, uh, four elementary school students who were behind two, three, four grade levels. And this is elementary school. So I was enrolled in this program. It was called the STAR program. And um, I didn't pass it. So I left that program being two grade levels behind because I failed the third grade twice, still being two grade levels behind when I got out, out of this program. And it, it, that weighed on me. So by the fifth grade, I was just like, nah, I don't care about this. You know, this can all sink to the ground. I remember wearing pajamas in school, like just rolling out of bed and whatever I had on walking to school, like it didn't matter to me at all. And that for, for the better part of my, my childhood from K to fifth, that was my attitude towards school, toward learning. 
Um, I thought that I would become like some of the rest of my family members who had dropped out of school, had babies while they were, you know, teenagers. And um, I would probably have a job. I probably work at a fast food restaurant. I often tell people because I, I like money. I always have wanted my own. So I'm, I'm the oldest. So it's like, you know, always having to share. So I, I think I would have had a job um, making money. But then you made a switch. I did. And it changed. Sorry, yeah, I like. Right? So, so, yeah, so go to that. <laughs> so, so what? Because obviously you're not dumb and you're not stupid, and and yeah. you you obviously are very well educated. So, so what happened? Yeah, what happened? Um, so I got a scholarship. So the summer before my sixth grade year, I began to live permanently with my godmother, um, and that was the first. You know, can major- I ask you? Can I stop you? I'm sorry to interrupt. Your choice, your biological mother's choice. Your uh, go- How did that happen? Okay. Question. Um, it was my choice, actually. Um, and it was pretty emotional as a 13 year old, you know, going to your biological mother saying you could I can't do this anymore. I I am leaving. Um, and that was a choice that I made at the age of 13 to go live with my godmother. She definitely, um, sh- her hands were tied. Um, there had been, which I found out later on, um, when I was little, you know, court case, court battles, you know, but I would say that in, at 13, I made that decision myself to, to live with my uh, godmother. And so she empowered me and, uh, waited outside and we drove off. Um, and that's when everything changed. And, um, she found a school for me. Uh, she found this small private school that her church had started and she didn't have a a way to pay for it. Her income was not significantly, you know, better. She wasn't, you know, making all this money that she could afford private school tuition. Um, and she found an after school program for me. So it was like this, these two, these two things, everything kind of my entire environment changed. I began to live in a home that was stable. I began to go to a new school and I, I went after school. I was not a latchkey kid. I went to an after school program where I spent all that afternoon. And, you know, back to the education piece, she didn't have a way to pay for private school tuition. And her friend told her about the Florida tax credit scholarship program. And that's when it all, you know, began. I began to go to this small private school on scholarship. Um, many of the teachers I actually kind of knew because they had I I had gone to the church before. I'd gone to the church with my godmother. Um it was like night and day. It was like night and day. When I walked into the school, first couple of days, of course, the teachers are smiling. They're, you know, hugging you. We're so happy to have you. Billboards are like decorated to the T, you know, like had artists, you know, these teachers. Um, And I was like, this is going to last one week. You know, I was used to this. I've been to so many different schools. I already knew the routine, Um, but it didn't. Every single day, that was the difference maker for me. These teachers greeted us with smiles and hugs. And it was a Christian school. They even prayed for us. You know, if if we came in looking, you know, they, they would pray for us. And I, that was my first, you know, like maybe this school is different. Um, there are other 
students, if I can interrupt, that had had similar challenges like you had that had come to that school for similar reasons? Or what was kind of the student makeup um, at your school, at your new school? Honestly, I don't know. I honestly don't know, Um, which could be a good thing, you know. Um, The student, everyone was of the same, like, I, I, to me, I felt like the outsider. I felt like the imposter because everyone else was such a, at such a different level at such a different standard, I guess. Um, firstly, like I mentioned, I would wear, you, I would wear, uh, pajamas to school. You know, I didn't really care about my appearance at all. Well, I went to this private school. We had a uniform that was structured from the head to the toe. Um, and students prided, prided themselves in how they came to school looking. Um, and so you had students, like everyone's shirt was ironed. Our skirts were pleated, you know, um, you know, our shoes, everything, our little beret, everything was, had a different standard of excellence and that's how the students presented themselves too. So I don't know actually if other students had struggled with similar things, you know, like, like me, that's a good question. But it sounds like that, that, that you, you rose to that. Um, and that's we right. should add that by the sixth grade, you are making honor roll, which is yeah. pretty impressive, you know, especially given making a transition into a new school. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like in, in your actual classes, what was different? Um, you know, how the teachers ran the classes, things like that. Yeah. Um, I did. I went from making D's and F's, um, to A's and B's. I went from believing that I was a failure to just realizing that the public school system had failed me and the teachers at this new school never let up. You know, they never let me get into my rut of thinking that I was dumb, that I was stupid, that I couldn't do it. They didn't come with that deficit mindset. I would be sitting in class, um, you know, and teacher would call, you know, obviously teachers always just do this, call on someone to read. I would not be the one raising my hand, like call on me, the one who's going to stumble over every word. Um, But the teachers would call on me. In sixth grade, I remember Miss Hart, she would call on me and I would just sit hyperventilating, crying, sobbing, trying to get through this passage. She would not budge. She would not go to a different student. She would wait patiently. She helped me, you know, to get to sound out words. And it wasn't in a disgruntled way. It was in a such a loving way. The students never laughed. I felt like I could be vulnerable in that sense to open up and to just admit basically that I needed help and they were there to do it. They saw the potential that I had and I didn't see that in myself. And I went from making D's and F's to A's and B's. Um, And that definitely boosted my confidence a lot. It wasn't a great that I just got because of I was socially, you know, uh, promoted or anything like that. I, I definitely worked at it. Um, so how and long it did was, it take you? Sorry, how long did it take you from from you, you know your your few grade levels behind when you come in to you know again honor roll at some point? So yeah. how long did it take you to feel comfortable? You said I belong here. I'm on par with all the other students. Was that it? Was that you know a year? A couple of years? 
Yes, a good question. I even today, it's sad to say my the model that I live by is I don't I do not believe the reason why I work in this area of education reform is because I deeply am passionate about no child should experience trauma in school. And I struggle with imposter syndrome till today. And I know where it stemmed from of believing that I'm not enough, not qualified, not deserving. So I like to say that it stopped, you know, the year that I got to um, a year after I got to to the to, to Esprit de Corps, uh, two years. But I struggled all the time like I, that I had to prove myself. I had to show my worth. And um so much I was, I, I was third in my class, um, valedictorian, salutatorian, I was third. And wow. I was so like, you know, so upset because I felt like I had to like prove myself and I did not, um, which, you know, they should have earned it. The valedictorian, she made straight A's since kindergarten and the salute. Yeah. So they, uh, but I was like, mm, can I take another college credit to, you know, get above them? Um, and so I would say it kind of, it kind of still lasts to be honest, but that's a good question. So you let's, let's fast forward a little bit. I I mean, I mean, you're, you're now as a professional advocating for, you know, other children to, you know, have the kind of experiences you do. You started something called black minds matter. Um, Let's talk about that a little bit. What is that? What's, you know, what's the purpose of that organization and why did you do that? Yeah, I started advocating for school choice, education freedom, options. You know, we call it so many different things. Um, When I was about 15 years old, I saw that my life was drastically different from my own siblings' lives. I saw that the opportunities that I had was different from the opportunities that many of the people I had gone to elementary school with, many of the people in my own biological family and community had had. And I just began to question, like, I'm not that special. You know, I am not that smart, obviously. Like, how was I able to get, how was I able to make it, you know? And um, just have, have to some- jump in and respectfully disagree with that statement. But uh, point well taken. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there it is something like what if other students had the same opportunity I had? You know, that was the my question. And I just began to listen, you know, during that time in Florida, the teachers union had sued the program. And that's kind of when I became activated. Um, there was a, a bill expansion in Florida um, where Governor Charlie Chris, he was a Republican at the time, signed the expansion bill of the tax credit into law and then ran again as governor, as a Democrat and said that his hands were tied. He was forced to do this. So I just began to listen and um, and I got the signing pin. I should mention that. That's why I was my ears were perked up and I was so angry. So I, I at an early age, I began to learn about politics and politics and education. And when the summer uh, of 2020, when we had social unrest across the country, um, so that's how I got involved in education reform um, professionally um, since 15. And I I should finish that by saying graduated from grad school, 
went to work at the U.S. Department of Education with Secretary Betsy DeVos, and then went to work um, at the American Federation for Children, where I am now, and launched Black Minds Matter. And I launched that the summer of 2020 when George Floyd was murdered in the country. Every organization, it seemed, was looking internally at their system, saying, are we racist? Um, is there any remnant of inequality um, in our systems? And from syrup bottles, we had a syrup and pancake company saying that we're going to change and rebrand because, you know, there's some remnants of racism here. No one was looking at the education system saying that we have some really disparate outcomes for black students in this country. And maybe we should look at that. You know, maybe we should change how we do things in the public school space, because in the education reform space and school choice space, we're graduating black students. We are providing them. They they're reading. They're going to college. Um, But in the public school space, they're going to prison. We've coined it the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And um. Maybe we should look at that. And so that is started with an op-ed that I wrote, just laying out these frustrations, saying, why haven't we looked at this? And it really snowballed into a movement, into a, a national initiative that we have now, um, which is so exciting. One of the wonderful things that I get the pleasure of working on is our um, Black Owned School Directory, which is uh, highlighting the education entrepreneurs um, who are who are black and they have started schools across the country. And many of these schools would not be operable if it wasn't for choice programs. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit about Black Minds Matter. Yeah, you know, and I've I've read um, I did I checked out the Black Minds Matter w- website and it does the directory is really interesting. And I was reading also about some of the schools. And one thing that one one that I was reading about um, some of the schools are promoting uh, being an all black school. And I just wanted to see kind of what is your take on that? Um, you know, there is some some research that's often quoted about that it being important that black kids have black teachers and just wanted to kind of see where you fall on that. Yeah, many of the schools on the directory are they're very diverse Um, and all of the founders that I've talked to, their reasoning for wanting to start a school has been because of the just the, the negative effects that they've seen black students have in public schools. So they're passion driven, mission focused. Um, And I would say there the schools are very diverse. So I have seen I've interacted with Montessori, you know, schools, farm schools that's out in nature, um, micro schools with chickens, you know, in their living room. Um, and so they're they're pretty diverse with different diverse bodies. But as far as you I am not an advocate under Black Minds Matter. We are not advocating for. Um, black kids to go to black owned schools. That's not the position of of BMM. I want to show that because of school choice, we know that school choice has impacted the lives of students and parents. We know that um, from my own experience, I know that. But we also have seen where school choice has created a spirit of entrepreneurship for people wanting to create innovative learning environments for students um, and more options. And so that's the goal, to highlight these people, 
to show that they're doing some pretty cool things out there. Um, And let's hear about their story and let's make them into super advocates, champions for the cause. And just to clarify um, what the American Federation for Children's mission is or kind of belief they they believe in choice and that in, that includes having high performing public schools do they not no that's right um we're agnostic we don't care about where a parent sends their kid to school um we're not getting into the weeds about a type of curriculum a school is teaching we want to make sure that every parent is empowered to send their kid to the school that they want their kid to go to that's, you know, specific to that kid's interests, their needs, their values. Um, And it's our job as an organization to make sure that all of those resources are there for that family to choose the best school for their kid. So if that's creating a new policy, if that's, you know, um, to ensure that there are scholarships, to ensure that there's enough charter schools in the place, that's our that's our role. I want to ask you I, kind of a difficult question. I want to put you on the spot and get, get your views, both both given your story and given what you now do professionally in this you know, school choice movement. We always hear from the teachers unions. We need more money, 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 money. Um, you know, schools are underperforming because we don't have enough resources. Do you think that any kid can do what you did can benefit if they're in a school with caring, attentive teachers, or, you know, is it not any kid? I mean, in other words, you, you know, you had to make a, a, a change. You went from living with, you know, your biological mother to your godmother, who's clearly, I'm guessing part of the story why, you know, you were, you were in, you know, incentivized to do well in school. So in your opinion, how much is, family a part of the story how much is being in the right environment or community or peers or siblings part of the story and how much is it the school specifically the quality of the teachers and the education part of the story yeah well, that's a, a lot packed into yeah, one it is <laughs> so i would say one to your first point you know the our opposition those who don't believe in freedom and education they're constantly saying we need to pour more money into the public school system. It The problem is we don't have enough money. And if we had enough money, then all of these outcomes would, uh, you know, disappear. Then we would all we would graduate kids. We would teach kids how to read. Well, I, I you know, the thing that's most interesting is, you know, the average public school in America, the, the, the average per pupil funding is about thirteen thousand dollars you know, per student. Um, and then the average scholarship cost is about seven to $8,000 for a kid to go to private school. Charter schools don't get the same amount of funding as their uh, traditional public school counterparts. So what what's their, you know, excuse? How are they a- able to crack the code, which with significantly less funding? So we know funding is not the issue. 
Um, you know, the issue really is the bureaucracy. I wouldn't say that the issue is public schools because we have some amazing teachers in public schools who complain that their hands are tied, that they want to do things for students and they're not able to because of the bureaucracy. They're terrified of the teachers union. Um, you know, off the record, we've talked to many teachers who don't want their stories to be highlighted because they're terrified of the teachers union. That's not a way to, you know, educate kids. They know that they don't want to teach to a test, but they know that that's how they got to keep their jobs. Um, if their students are going to, you know, pass this test, that's how they're going to, you know, get into administration and keep all of their benefits. Um, so money is is not the issue. And then as far as, you know, nature versus nurture, um, you know, is it was it because or is it because of family or is it because of, you know, my environment being at school? I would say, you know, my story is unique to me. Um, all of those different things happened at the same time, which was a godsend. But over the years on our website, uh, voicesforchoice.net, um, we have over 800 stories of parents and students and teachers who've benefited from school choice. And their stories are so diverse. You know, one of the students who uh, I love her to pieces, Ashley Elliott, her, her teacher pulled her from the public school system. She went, she was a teacher at public school um, and was Ashley's teacher. And when she left to go work at Victory Christian Academy, she took Ashley with her. She's like, you're coming with me. And her education outcome changed. She was enrolled on scholarship program to pay for the, the private school tuition. And her academic outcomes changed. The teacher left for those same reasons. She felt like her hands were tied and she couldn't really help her students. And she convinced Ashley's grandmother to let her come to this school with her. So everyone's story is different, but I would say the, the, the thing that is similar is that a, a child is a minor. They need someone, you know, someone to, to take interest in them, in their life, in their academic achievement um, and how they are doing educationally. And so I think that is what is is needed. Um, Ashley's living situation didn't change, um, but someone took interest in her. It's that, that is a very inspiring story. Thank you for sharing that. And just isn't it, wouldn't it be amazing to see that happen, you know, a thousandfold, a hundred thousandfold, and what a different state we'd be in um, with with kids and getting better opportunities. Uh, one thing that you wrote uh, that I really liked, um, it's 100% aligned with the philosophy of, of Robert Woodson, um, who was at the old Parkland conference with us. Um, you wrote that too often the education system views black children, their community and its challenges through a deficit-based perspective that emphasizes alleged shortcomings inside and out of the classrooms. I want beneficiaries of school choice to advocate for a strengths-based perspective that focuses on the potential of every child. What, um, I guess, you're, you're an example of that. Somebody identified that you had strengths and that you could, that you could do better. Um, how do you see this playing out in the schools that you encounter um, throughout, you know, being affiliated with American Federation for Children? And then also what, what can be done to further inculcate this mindset? Yeah. Um, one, yeah, I, the thing that I see that's most 
common with schools of choice um, than the traditional public school, not all the traditional public schools that I've seen um, have been, yeah, their attitude towards students. Um, They're doing this work, not because they're getting paid a lot of money. Most of the people who are launching schools of choice, be it charter, private, homeschool, micro school, virtual school, they're not getting paid, you know, the same amount as they, that, that, that they would if they were working for the district. Many of them have lost their benefits um, because they're not, you know, connected to the pension plan and their 401k plan, you know. So um, they're they're entrepreneurs. Yeah, they've started these, you know, small schools. And um, I would say the thing that is most common with all of these schools is they come with passion. They come with really wanting to help students, seeing students as they are, and knowing that it's not because of a system that they're not performing well. It's because they 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 need the environment, you know, to do that, um, if that makes sense. Like, it's not because of one particular, you know, thing. I'm, uh, I wish I could say this better. Like every student has the potential and it's their job just to pull it out of them and to work at doing that. That's something that I've seen that's in in common instead of on the reverse, like, oh, this student just can't do it. It's like can't is not in their vocabulary. Like, no, the student can do it. We just got to pull it out of them. So that kind of answered uh, Andrew's question to you earlier, actually. I think that that was a great answer. Yeah. So one, one, one last question for me, and then I know Beth wants to talk briefly about the, the conference you guys were at, but I live in the New York area, Blue State. Beth also lives in Blue State, Illinois. You're from the free state of Florida, which we're Woo-hoo. all jealous. Yeah, um, maybe may come down there soon. But <laughs> teachers unions, so against school choice, against charter schools, they fight it tooth and nail, uh, you know, where Beth and I live. Um, Florida has some really interesting, you know, charter schools, some classical charter schools. You know, do you, in, in your work, is there any hope for pushing school choice? And we see a lot of parents now, given what happened with COVID and, and school closures, there's, there's more momentum, you know, nationally to push these kind of school choice issues. But from your work, do you see any progress being made in, you know, the blue states and fighting the teachers unions on these issues? Or do you think this becomes a, you know, red versus blue, the red states like Florida are going to have school choice and the blue states forget it. You got the monopoly of the public school systems and that is it. Any thoughts on that? You know, the teachers unions, they're uh, one of our biggest hurdles when it comes to, you know, making education freedom a reality for every student in America. And their influence and impact is so entrenched in states like New York, California's, you know, they really, it's, it's sad how they've infiltrated um, the education system. Um, But I don't think it's impossible. One of the things like you mentioned, you know, in your question is, is COVID. One of the things that happened in Virginia is, is, you know, using your tagline, parents wanted to take back their schools. They saw that what was being taught in the schools, what whatever reason, 
they were in power. And that was the number one issue area for this this last gubernatorial um, election of why parents stood up education. And I don't think that it's impossible for more states to mirror Florida. We see it happening um, in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is very blue, but parents are choosing, you know, it's kind of second nature. They funded uh, the, 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 the state funds private schools, charter schools and traditional schools all through the same budget. And that was a pretty momentous, you know, uh, step in a in a very in a very blue state. But so we have a lot to do. The teachers unions have, you know, caused a lot of fuss. They sued the Florida program twice um, and really activated parents to so that they could, you know, say, no, we want this program. But it does take that momentum from parents to say, we want this. We are not going to just allow you to teach, do tell whatever the the onset is our students we want to be empowered and um and we see that happening we do we see that happening across the country and i think it's our role as education reformers to harness that so that parents uh, can know where to direct it best yes both andrew and i um are on also that frontline fight in addition to doing this podcast and many other things so um it, it was really neat to see people rise up and possibly reconnect in ways that they perhaps hadn't been doing enough of um, yeah. over the past several years, perhaps decades. Mm-hmm. And so now that was a good tidal wave. So, okay, old Parkland Conference, which yeah. you and I were blessed enough to go to. So this was a, just for the listeners, a meeting that was held at the old Parkland Conference Center in Dallas. Um, and it was uh, a meeting of public intellectuals, academics, journalists, and grassroots practitioners to discuss upward mobility and persistent inequality Um, particularly among Blacks um, in the United States. And it was inspired by a conference uh, called the Fairmont Conference that Thomas Sowell had organized more than 40 years ago. Um, It was hosted by Ian Rowe um, of AEI and uh, 1776 Unites and uh, in a new school that he's launching, uh, an IB school uh, in New York. Glenn Lowry, professor at Brown University, Jason Riley of the Wall Street Journal, and Shelby Steele of the Hoover Institution. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the sessions focused on education, education, policing, culture, affirmative action, you know, many topics that are that are quite at the fore. So I, um, I, I, I took so much from the program, but I'm interested in kind of what, if some, what some of the highlights were uh, for you. Yeah, my favorite session was um, the keynote speech by Shelby Steele. Um, he talked about um, how as one of the things, the core of what he believes is the problem or the issue within Black culture and why there hasn't been much advancement in all those buckets that you just mentioned is that we still view ourselves as being oppressed people and not free people, um, that we are free. And, you know, he he had everyone raise their hand, you know, do you believe that we're still oppressed? And I was like, uh, you know, kind of scratching their head like, no. <laughs> And, you know, we're free, you know, to say those words, we're free. And um, I that was that was by far my my favorite session. And it fits in line with what we advocate for in the education reform space. We advocate for education freedom 
for parents to take on the mantle and not be spoon fed any talking point, any myth, any, you know, system, you know, to to be free in education, to exercise that freedom and to not allow anyone to spoon feed you anything that you're not comfortable with, um, to, to exercise that right that, that we have. And, um, I just, yeah, he, he was just a brilliant brain throughout the entire summit. And that keynote, uh, speech that is, that he gave was just awesome. It was, I, um, I thought that was terrific. Definitely, uh, would commend the book white guilt to people among his other many incredible works. And, you know, just recounting that story of, you know, this is a man who lived through segregation, whose Mm -hmm. mother, when she was wheeled into the hospital to give birth to him, um, she is white was taken up to the ninth floor. His father who is black comes in and she is taken to the basement. I mean, this is, this is, he knows this firsthand. And then, um, for him, it, just to uh, the brilliance with which he he writes and talks about some of these issues, um, I too, it resonates uh, very strongly with me. I loved when he said, you know, what would you do if there was no racism? Yeah. And again, the hush falls, you know, across the crowd. Yeah. And his answer is then do it. Yeah. Don't let yeah. this get in, in. This is it's a mindset. Yeah. And um, a mindset. so it was powerful. I love like um, to I call it a. Uh, I call it PTSD, post-traumatic slave disorder. Oh. <laughs> and um, I feel like, yeah, it's it really it should be a diagnosis in the DSM-5 because a, a lot of us suffer from it. Um, and we we shouldn't suffer from that. It is a mindset. It's it's more mental. And his his speech was talk you know, phys- physiolog- like uh, psychological, like we have to change this and stop thinking this way. Um, mm-hmm. And there, you know, there are also some who who profit over that type of negative disempowered mindset. And uh, I think he coined, at least for me, a new phrase called the grievance elite. So I hope to see perhaps an op-ed or have that pop up in some of his writings. Um, I also, a highlight for me too, was Justice Thomas and his keynote discussion at dinner. Um, And um, he you know, so many great points. And that actually is available. I think I did see that's posted on C-SPAN. So people can Google that um, and actually see that. Uh, But I loved, it was interesting, you know, he talked a little bit about the court and the leak and some of the things in in the news today. But I also, um, I loved that he recommended that book, Live Not by Lies, Mm -hmm. um, by Alexander, or actually it's an essay um, by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, just about, you know, that we need to be we must continue to pursue truth. We cannot, we can't be diverted from that. Um, that is something that is, you know, really the bedrock of our society, our institutions. And so I just um, really appreciated his, his perspectives. So yes, and it was great to meet you. And also, yeah. Yeah. Um, we mentioned that your family is going to in, get bigger soon. And yes. congratulations <laughs> on that. And Thank um, you. so yeah, no, very, very best wishes uh, as you enter that phase. Yeah, that's thanks. a scary phase parenthood, for one, <laughs> and then uh, having to deal with, you know, kids, your kids in, in the education system one way or another. I know I'm definitely going <laughs> to be type A. Um, yeah. I'm going to be so type A with all of the different options that's out there. Like, I know, I know the ropes. I know all I've been to so many schools, uh, but I'm so excited. Thank you. Yeah. And it was great to meet you in person, Beth. Normally with the new age that we're in, you 
you know, have you meet people virtually over Zoom and then meet them in person. But we actually met in person before we met in Zoom. So we're kind of like going back to the old normal, um, which I love. Let's keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on Take Back Our Schools. We really appreciated hearing your perspectives, your life story, and now what you're doing professionally to advance all children's educations with school choice. It's just something that we, Beth and I really feel strongly about as well. So thanks for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Beth, for having me. It's been a pleasure. So let's, I want to talk about one thing Denise just said, uh, but for, first I want to talk about, since we just ended with the Parkland conference, uh, Clarence Thomas was there and I know it's public, so you can talk about it. So yes. what did he say about the leak? Anything interesting? Uh, yes. And, you know, I think my takeaway from that was that I think he was deeply troubled by it. I think he really looked at that as a real violation of trust, um, you know, even saying things that we are in danger of losing our institutions and that he really felt, I think he even actually likened it to infidelity. And so it was a real breach. I think it really pained him. And it was something that, um, you know, I couldn't tell if, if he had seen that something like this could happen over time. I just know that it actually happening was, um, you know, I think a little bit of a tremor. So that was um, that was that was definitely notable um, in how he he talked about it. Was he a good he, spirit? So generally, I mean, or, or was that like yes. such a big? Yeah, he was okay. Oh, I mean, about that, about that. Or just in general. You, oh no, in general, affable, very approachable. Um, really, really enjoyed meeting him, talking with him. He was sitting, you know, in the you know audience for for most of the program, you know, and chatting with whoever's around him. He was, you know, it was really wonderful. And then um, when he gave his talk, which John Yu interviewed him, who was his clerk and is a um, also with Hoover Institution and is at, I believe, uh, UC Berkeley Law School. That was a great back and forth because they were familiar with one another. And, you know, it really ranged. It talked about, you know, the court then, the court now, um, you know, a little bit about 30 years ago when he was appointed. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a very, it was a great, a great talk. And uh, as I mentioned in our interview with Denisha, people can find it on C-SPAN. They were there live streaming it and it is recorded. So it's, it is, it is worth a watch. I think another, you know, one other thing that I really took away from his talk is he gave this example. Um, we were talking a little bit about affirmative action and they were, um, he, he had had a young woman apply to work uh, at the Supreme Court. And as she goes through this whole process, And it isn't until the very end, and she makes it through, that he learns that she's black. And he said, you know, that that is, you know, I didn't know that. Um, You know, please tell this young woman, he says to his staff. And his, you know, that that I, I hadn't known. And so he said, you know, what do you think her reaction was when she learned that? And he said, she was delighted. She had made it on her own resume, her own achievements, her own abilities. And so that was that was great to hear. Um, that was also a topic of discussion during the conference. You know, we had several panels. It was really over over about two days, and um, so that was good. So it was great. Is there is there? I'm curious. So this, this conference is a lot of, for lack of a better word, black conservatives or people that are at least identified they, as black conservatives in the media. Of course, now they're all white supremacists. 
Is there uh, a general? Yeah. Well, and let me no. let me interrupt just that it was it was organized, but I, I by I think people um you know per, some of whom identify as a conservative, but not all, and certainly not, all, okay. not attended by exclusively conservatives. We, we did have people all, all all up and down. Is was there a, the consensus on affirmative action? I that it is or counterproductive, less. or that it is a good mm-hmm. thing? Is there was there? I mean, I'm sure, I'm guessing there were discussions on there that. Absolute- Obviously, there it's a big case going on. Yes. Harvard admissions. We don't know what that's going to be, but yes, there... for which, by the way, Justice Thomas was not in the room, um, you know, obvious for obvious reasons. You know, the um, yes, there there was I, I think it's fair to say there would have been consensus that it has outlived its usefulness um, there, you know, might have been a couple who who were uh, perhaps not as clear cut, although clearly from the panel and just the discussion that we that we had about it is I think it, you know, it, it definitely derails achievement in it's something that it, you know, and I do remember part of that discussion was also that affirmative action. A lot of time it is not benefiting low income students. I think it's designed, you know, it's designed to get numbers up in certain categories and, you know, maybe the assumption is that, Oh, this is going to benefit people who otherwise would not have had an opportunity. Sometimes it is benefiting people who come from immigrant families who are quite well off. Sometimes it's coming, you know, so it's just, you really need to dig beneath the surface um, to see what's really happening. And then also there is the timing issue. You know, it was intended to be a short term benefit or program. And it's 60 years later, I think passed its sell by date personally, (laughs) but it was so no. And I I think probably it would be fair to say that I think most people kind of agreed that it is it's it is time to go. Um, but that will that will definitely be you know a decision for the courts. Yeah. So you mentioned also that in the conversation with Denise Shelby Steele. Yes. Um, I, I don't remember if I said this on an earlier podcast. So I wrote I wrote the letter to my fellow parents at Brearley School, which is how I became this accidental activist. I actually considered sending his book, White Guilt, along with that letter. And, and I, I ultimately I? decided I should have, I, I only decided I didn't want to kind of spend the money. I already spent the money on the postage because I mailed the letter. I didn't email it, but, but I did. Cause I thought that was an incredibly powerful book. That's, that's the only book I've read by him, but to what you and Denisha talked about a little bit on this, on this podcast earlier, he saw real racism and he makes such a strong distinction between what was real racism. So what was real systemic or institutional racism and what we have now, which in, I think his view and in my view, and I got criticized for this in, in my letter, this, what we have today is not systemic or institutional racism. Racism will always be there till the end of human beings, probably for, for lots of reasons, but it is no longer systemic or institutional. And I thought he makes such a powerful distinction. And I'm curious if, if that's something, you know, you, you alluded to it with, with the hospital example, um, is that, you know, that to me, that's so powerful. And I'm curious, you know, take, get your take on, yes. on that. So, yes, I, I mean, I think he'd agree um, that, that we are, we are past the point of institutional systemic racism. He, you know, I think one of the takeaways for me, um, and, you know, he also participated in the black power movement, and this is all um, outlined in white guilt and shame. um, And actually, there's a very good story, and I forgot which one it's in, about when he had his moment um, leaving that movement. Uh, because he, I think he realized, I think they were, um, he and Rita, his wife were over in Africa and they were meeting with 
um, exiles, you know, people who had been exiled from the U.S. because of their activism. And so he kind of realized how incredibly sad they were and almost homesick. And he kind of realized that this is empty. And that was the beginning of the of the shift for him. So, no, I think he would absolutely uh, agree with that. And I think he would say, you know, he talks a lot about it is a mindset um, and that, you know, with freedom comes responsibility. One of the and Denisha uh, alluded to this, like his moment, you know, you know, we are free. Now, what are you going to do? And so, yeah, I mean, he definitely writes with that in mind. Um, And one thing, too, that I, I really enjoy about his writing is his love for his parents. Um, they were, they made such an impression. We're both great people, civil rights activists. And, um, that, that is something that's, uh, you can see where his inspiration comes from. And it goes, it goes the other way. It goes to the third generation because you and I both know, and you know him better than I do, but I've gotten to know him a little bit. His son, Eli Steele. Yes. The film documentary filmmaker, terrific human being. Absolutely. Um, So it's, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. It goes, I guess, at least three generations there. Amen to that. Yes. All right. Last last thing to talk about, unless you have something else. I want want to go back to something that we talked to Denisha about a little bit. You know, it's a little bit controversial. And I'd love to get your view and I'll give mine maybe. But do you think any kid can benefit from being in the right school environment? You know, there was a, the famous study, I think it was in the early 60s, 63 or 64, the, the Moynihan Report. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a famous uh, Democratic senator from New York. Um, and, and unexpectedly, the report said that, you know, educational achievement was not based mostly on, it, you know, it was not a, correlated with race or how much money was spent in the school. It was mostly correlated with family structure. If you have to parents, if you have a stable family life, you tend to have much better educational achievement. So we, you know, Denisha changed schools, went from a low performing public to a much, I guess, higher performing, it sounds like, you know, private school, faith, maybe it's faith-based private school, but she also changed family structure. She, she talked about going to live with, you know, her godmother. And what do you think? I mean, do you, you know, we, we talk about, you know, is schools, is better schools the panacea? Or are these societal problems much broader than that? Um, so, uh, yes, I think every every student has potential. Every child has potential. I, I am a firm believer in that. Um, is school alone the solution? I would say no. I think there are going to be kids. Kids need more than just a school environment in order to help them thrive. And I think yeah. the research says that I think common sense says that. So the question becomes, okay, so then what do you do? And I am a firm believer is in, is that um, you don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. You do as much as you can to empower parents to make the best fit choice for their kids in school. That could be public. It could be private. It could be charter. It could take any, it could be homeschool. Um, but I think that that is the, that is the direction that we go. And by the way, these 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 education options get better with a little competition, um, and I think that that is absolutely. Well, that's healthy. the magic of the free market, right? Absolutely, it competition is. makes everything. It, it the does bar broadly exactly. So so I think that is um, so. So my answer is yes. You know, it gets you. You do get into the situation. Okay, so all right, yes, family. All the data says family structure is really important. Um, critically important, in fact, but not all kids have that family structure. Denisha is a great example. You know, it can happen where another adult steps into a child's life 
and helps and helps remedy, you know, some of the shortcomings. And and, and I think that that um, absolutely happens. It probably happens more than we know. And I think you can still extol a goal, but while dealing with conditions on the ground and dealing with them lovingly and in ways and um, where where you can help uh, perhaps change it in the next generation and that, that we should always be aiming high. Um, and yes, I think we have to believe that every kid has potential too. I just, I don't want to live in a world where that becomes not the case. Um, and so, you know, call me a naive optimist or whatnot, but I'll, I'll take it happily. <laughs> well said. Let's end on the optimistic note. We do need school choice. We do need better schools. It's not the panacea. It's not the only issue I think that we have, but it is one of the things that we absolutely need to focus on to, you know, to, to improve our country and our children. So on that, Great. we'll say goodbye. Thank you for everybody listening to Take Back Our Schools this week. We had a terrific conversation with Denisha Merriweather. We'll be back soon for another terrific conversation. Um, as always, if you like us and we appreciate if you would share us and give us a good rating wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Beth Feely, we'll see you soon on another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Thanks, Andrew. Ricochet. <laughs> Join the conversation.